I had a good streak going. It was years long. I'd get up every morning before six. I'd work on a play for a couple hours, then I'd head to my job. I'd do that early morning thing five or six days a week with a breather here and there. I really liked that schedule because I'd be up writing before the distractions of the world began. Sure, I'd get tired later in the day and start falling asleep by 10, but that's what 10 is for. Late night TV is for insomniacs and college students and parents with newborns. Anyway, with that schedule, I'd be able to write one or two plays a year and then revise another couple plays in need of attention. It felt good. I felt productive. Then, of course, Corona came and killed my mojo. Killed all of our mojos. But this isn't about how I've lost myself because of the virus. This is about how my priorities have evolved. It became pretty clear in the early weeks of lockdown I would not be able to maintain the status quo. At the time, it was fine because I was in rehearsals for a production and we all naively believed the situation would be over in a month, two at most. When the short postponements became indefinite closures and 2020 began to seem like a lost cause for theater, I looked back at my regular early morning schedule and thought, oh, isn't that cute? Mornings became for sleeping in, afternoons for doom scrolling, and evenings for binging TV. This went on for a few weeks before I started to feel bad about myself. If I define myself as a playwright and I'm not writing plays, then who am I? This is when the unbearable silence began creeping in. All that time in my days that was spent being busy or spent thinking about writing became quiet. And I could not stand it. Because silence is never silent. It's full of all the things my consciousness can conjure. Silence became about what's happening outside. What's the government doing? What happened in my career? What if I get sick? I think about my family, unemployment, poverty, endless cycles of my mind asking what, 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 what. So I'd fill the silence with podcasts. At night, I'd rewatch episodes of The Office until I fell asleep, giving myself over to my subconscious for a few hours. This went on for a couple months when I had the realization that I wasn't producing anything. I wasn't creating. I'm a playwright, a creator of things I had to create. So I started to invent projects for myself. I called them sanity projects. I became obsessed with them spending hours each day neglecting job stuff, working on a short film, or producing little audio dramas so I could feel creative, so I could feel like a playwright again. More importantly, so I could stay busy, keep the silence away. Then, time passed, my depression waned, and I fell into a sort of mood I like to call melancholy plus one. It means I'm just a tick ahead of the sadness that tended to envelop me. And here I am today, abundantly aware that this need to work, to create, is what makes me feel valuable, necessary, meaningful. But what I learned is not working or creating doesn't mean I'm lacking value, am unnecessary or meaningless. And I learned a bigger lesson. It's not the product I miss creating. It's the people I got to spend time with. 
I've started to realize the value of company and the joy of shared time with people. So now when I'm thinking about the aftertime, when this is behind us, it's not 5 a.m. writing mornings that I am excited to normalize again, although I am eager to write more consistently. It's talking with friends and family in person and not having the conversation always be about the thing I'm creating or the play I want to write. Instead, just talking about whatever, bread we baked, funny things our dogs did, something interesting we read, a silly story from youth, or maybe just joyfully sitting together in silence. Welcome to the subtext. I'm Brian James Polak. This month on the podcast, I talked to David Ajme about feeling family pressure to become like a Trump, but having the heart of an artist instead. We talk about his playwriting, the court case he fought in defense of his play 3C, and the memoir he spent a decade writing. It's an awesome chat. Before we get to it, please take a moment to rate and review the subtext on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your pods. If you aren't subscribed, do that too so future episodes can be automatically zapped into your devices. And if you're on social media, give us a shout on Twitter. We are at Subtext Podcast. Or you can use the hashtag the Subtext Podcast. Let us know what you think, and if there's something you want to hear on a future episode, let us know. With that out of the way, let me introduce David Ajme. David's the author of the plays The Evildoers, Stunning, 3C, and Marie Antoinette. His plays have been produced all over, including at Lincoln Center, Royal Shakespeare Company, Steppenwolf, and Soho Rep. His writing has been featured or profiled in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, American Theater, Bomb, The Guardian, and The Rumpus. His newest play, Stereophonic, will premiere on Broadway in 2021 with music by Will Butler from Arcade Fire. COVID permitting. David wrote a memoir titled Lot 6, which was recently published by HarperCollins. We talk a good deal about that. Okay, here it is. Me talking to David Ajme over Zoom at the beginning of October in 2020. So how long have you been living in Los Angeles? I've been here on and off for about seven years, but most of that time was spent in Europe. I was sort of like had a home base here, but then I, um, I had these residencies abroad and I was just wanted to get the hell out of America, to be honest. So I, I would spend about half the year doing a residency somewhere in France or something, and then I'd come back here. So it was a very privileged lifestyle that yeah. I, I could keep for a while. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, we actually met, we met once in person, uh, it was, I, I can't remember, it was like 2013 or 2014. Uh, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and CTG convened a whole bunch of playwrights to come into up to the rehearsal room. And we all sat in a circle and chatted with you for like an hour or two. Oh my God, I have no memory of it. <laughs> but I don't remember, I, I have a bad memory. I mean, I remember some things. Yeah. It's like, it's like the, what's that line, Becca? Becca I, I either remember or I, I remember everything or I completely forget. I don't, can't remember, but I right. like that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because it's one of those things where it was, uh, 
I, I get that you wouldn't remember it because it was just like one of many sort of like events and things that you had to do. Um, but something you said really resonated with me and it came at a really important time um, for me as a writer. Uh, I was, I think I was in my last year of grad school at USC at the time. Um, so I was still very much in that like, I'm becoming me sort of phase. And I think you were talking about your play Marie Antoinette, but what you were talking about was developing a sense of um, confidence in yourself to not have answers to questions. And that really stuck with me. Like that jumped out of all the things that were talked about that day. That was the thing that I walked away with and that I've carried with me um, in all the years, all the years since then. And I sort of have, I've taken that on. I'm like, yeah, it's okay to not know something. I don't have to have an answer for you right now. The answer can just be like, it needs to be there. And I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. You, we do have to perform as playwrights. You know, we have to make stuff up a little bit and we have to create a public self. And sometimes the public self, we mistake for a profi completely proficient self because a public self does have to be somewhat proficient, but also you have to negotiate with the honesty and the specificity of your, uh, your vision and, and um, the truth. I mean, and, and so, and, and I think people really respect you more when you're honest and really um, determinate about your honesty and not like, oh, I'm so sorry, but I don't know. Or like, I've done that before. Mm. But if you just do it really um, balls out, <laughs> there's nothing anyone can, can say to that because um, you can only know what you know. Yeah. I mean, Pinter, Pinter is the, 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 the ne plus ultra of this whole philosophy because he didn't know anything about his characters. <laughs> he didn't know anything about anything. And he was like, I don't know anything, sorry. You know, maybe he was lying and that was for show, but I sort of believe him when he said things like, I don't know where they come from. I don't know why they're doing these things. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, because he was channeling from some bizarre realm, some, you know, the land of Pinter. And he was just transcribing what the people did. And he wasn't going to apologize for that. I just found that so, that kind of arrogance that comes from um, listening, deep, deep, deep listening to yourself and to your characters and to the, the rigorous specificity of the world that you're making, I think is a very important thing to cultivate. Do you think you're able to do that? Do you function, do you write in that way? Yeah, I mean, I do. I always felt I had to apologize for it. In my weaker moments, I will apologize again. You know, depending on who the kind of force of a personality that I'm encountering in the process of development or rehearsal or whatever, I can collapse sometimes um, and go back to my old tail between my legs, you know, this horror of the self. But, um, you know, I think, I think most of who I am as a playwright and what I do or as an artist in general is like, I don't, I do feel like I channel things and I don't, I'm embarrassed about it in a certain way because I don't know how to explain it to people who don't channel things. It just makes me into a parlor trick for them and that embarrasses me. Um, but whatever strength or whatever like credibility I have as a writer comes from that capacity 
So even though people don't understand the capacity, they understand the products mm -hmm. <laughs> of my capacity. And once I started seeing that circuit, I was like, well, if you like what I made, then you're going to need to respect where it comes from. And I don't have to explain it to you because I can't explain it. Like when people say to me, well, what is the idea for this? Where'd you get this idea? I don't know. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Where do I get an idea from synapses fire? I have no clue where I get it. I couldn't begin. So, you know, I lie. Now I just make things up like, well, blah, blah, blah. You know, I say things, <laughs> but it's not true. I just say it to sort of give them the kind of answer that they need to check off, to tick off a box. Right. But right. it's not really the truth. Right. And like you said before, it's a performance. Right. And sometimes people, you just have to like give people Gerber baby food if they need, if they're like, please give me Gerber baby food and you'll find here. Because if you try to give them, you know, Thomas Keller's Agnolati, they're, they're not going to want it. <laughs> they're not going to know what they're eating. So you just mm. give them Gerber's baby food. Okay, fine. Want to know where my idea came from? Well, I was walking down the street, blah, 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 you know, but like, it's not true. It's never true for mm -hmm. me. Do you, do you remember when you first started putting pen to paper? Oh, as a writer? Yeah, as a writer. Uh, I mean, I flirted with it, I, I, you know, with writing things or, but I was very undisciplined and I was very uncertain and I was very um, scared of writing. I mean, I was really scared of my imagination or I dismissed my imagination as a young person. I didn't have any encouragement really to pursue imaginative acts. So I wasn't one of these kids that like had like a puppet theater in the back of his house and did all these things. I mean, I did things kind of like on the sly, like especially if like my, my best friend at the time when I was little, we used to do stuff together. And I, I liked it better to do it with, with somebody because um, I felt less insecure or scared of, but I think that's probably because I was a writer from a young age, but I was just, I was frightened of it. I didn't, I didn't know what that meant to be a writer. And I didn't, I wasn't, I thought my insecurity meant that I couldn't do it. Like I, I, I sort of thought, oh, that means that I shouldn't be doing this because it makes me nervous. But actually that was the imprimatur of my, <laughs> my, my writing ability was like how much I wanted to do it and how scared I was about it. Right. So you weren't expressing your imagination, but you were still living it, right? And like yes. you had it, it was existing, it was happening inside you. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to translate. I didn't know that I had permission to translate things, thoughts into another kind of expression. Like I didn't know how to express anything and I didn't think I was deserving of expression or something. I thought, I thought my, I believed that my inner world and my thoughts were sort of bizarre and truant and should just be like kept inside of me. Um, so I don't know, I had like a strange form. It was like kind of like politeness. Like I thought it was etiquette, keep it in. Why do you think that is? I think I was, I, I, how I was raised. I mean, I was raised sort of, I wasn't raised, I wasn't, you know, I saw the Jane Fonda documentary recently, the HBO movie about her, which I think is an amazing, uh, film and she talks a lot about how when she was younger she didn't her parents didn't reflect her back to herself with these mm -hmm. mirror eyes they she didn't see herself so she didn't know that she existed and um so she just like lived in this as this like tucked in person and it wasn't until she went to, to lee strasberg's classes and he forced her to get up and do acting in front of everybody and said oh my god you can do this that she believed that she could do something because 
I mean, I, there must be these like incredible Titanic personalities that don't need that growing up. And they're like, I don't care. You know what I mean? I'm sure that there are, who knows who they are? Madonna? I don't know. <laughs> there are sure these people, but I wasn't one of them. I, and, and I was also very, very responsive to whatever cues I got as a kid to shut up. I also came from this generation where it was like seen and not heard generation. Although seen even was like negligible. Maybe, maybe I should, don't even be seen. Just go somewhere. <laughs> just go away. That's how I thought, that's what I thought being a good person was. Just go away. Just like negate yourself. And so, and I wanted to do that. Cause I just, I just felt, felt like I was following the cues I was getting. So if Lee Strasberg is the one that pushed Jane Fonda to start finding herself, who did, who was your Lee Strasberg? I don't think I had a Lee Strasberg really. I mean, I think I had little mini Lee Strasbergs and I had to put together I had, to, I had to go on like a treasure hunt for myself. <laughs> so, or like an Easter egg hunt. Like it wasn't necessarily like one person looking at me and going, you can do this. But there were little cues along the way. I had little shrinks that helped me. I had, you know, I, I kind of sort of had to learn how to do it for myself, which is why everything took me such a long time. I had to, I had to learn what it meant to empower and encourage myself. And, and at some point, my enthusiasm and my excitement about art just i got too overwhelming and i and i knew and i and, and also when push came to shove it was like i was being really pushed to live a certain kind of a life a very conventional life that my parents wanted for me um which was like you know straight married to a woman living in this thing having a business you know i mean basically like trump they really wanted me to be like Trump. That would be the, have been the ideal. Mm -hmm. I, if, if my mother heard me say that, she'd flip out. But that is kind <laughs> of the message that I got. Like when I saw Trump when I was little, I thought, oh, that's very familiar to me because mm -hmm. that's what I've grown up with. And so it, when I was confronted with that, I said no. And, if I, and I knew that when I said no to that, I was saying yes to something else. But I hadn't articulated the yes. And so that, that, but I knew I had to articulate it for my survival, for my psychic survival. What, what age were you when you had this realization? It came many, a lot, again, lots yeah. of little realizations, like, and lots of terrors that I, I was going to be forced because my, my father in particular really wanted to force me mm. to do this. He was very, um, he was just kind of a bully a little bit. Again, he would be, you know, mad if I said that about it, but he was, he was like, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You are, you are. And if you tried to assert yourself, he would really fight you. Like if you said, I don't want to do this. Yes, you do. You don't understand, you know? And so, you know, I was being gaslit quite a lot. Mm. And so I was going through this thing of like trying to understand what is my desire, you know? And, and, and so it was sort of came in waves and sometimes I would really feel like I understood my, what I wanted and who I was. And the other times I was just braided together with all these other people wanting things for me that made me feel very depressed and alienated. Um, so, but it really was around college when I went to, um, you know, when I left home, I had a little bit of space to start to think through things. And, um, you know, I'd seen a lot of theater when I was younger and I started seeing theater again. And I saw a few plays that very much um, influenced me and inspired me. And I thought, I want to feel that feeling. I want to feel that feeling and I want to give that feeling to other people, even though I haven't cultivated the qualities inside of myself to be that person yet. Mm -hmm. To be 
to have that kind of mastery of vision, but I know I have some germ of something that's in that play because I wouldn't be feeling the way I do if I didn't, if it wasn't already living inside of me in some nascent way. So then I start, so in a way the art tutored me, mm. the art taught me who I was because finally I saw, that was the mirror. Though That was the mirror, maybe that was the Lee Strasberg thing. Like suddenly the mirror eyes were staring at me. Oh God, you see me. Now you see me, you see parts of me that I don't even understand about myself yet. That's what I think was so seductive. What were the plays that were influencing you? The two plays, I, I think that the, well, there were a few. I mean, John Guare's play, Six Degrees of Separation. Uh, obviously Angels in America. I saw that I think four times. Uh, Nikki Silver's play Pterodactyls mm -hmm. was a huge influence on me. I became kind of obsessed with Nikki Silver and farce. And I then I, from Nikki Silver, I learned about Joe Orton and I became very much obsessed with um, gay farce um, for a while and dark, dark farce. Um, and probably all these, you know, play uh, Three Tall Women that I saw with Miriam in it. Um, that was very revelatory for me at the time. So um, those are the plays. That was just what was happening at the time. It's all like white guys, but they were amazing white guys. Yeah. So you, so you're talking about how you know you you didn't have like uh, an aha moment. Like the things are sort of happening, and it was slowly like the the influence of the art and this realization of what you don't want to be and and whatnot. At what point did you start to think, oh, I I could be a playwright? It took me forever because I had seen those plays like in the early nineties, you know, I was in school and um, I just, my, the thing that like undid me again and again was my bad self-esteem because I just, mm -hmm. I couldn't, if I couldn't do it right away, I didn't think I could ever do it. Mm -hmm. And I would look at everything. I just read what I wrote and look at that as evidence of who I was and what my capacities were. And I was in development, but I, under, I didn't understand that I was developing as a person and that I was stunted really because no one had helped me grow into a man. Like I just was like flailing and desperate to be believe in something about myself, but I just, I, I had no evidence of it. And the people in my family were really flailing as well. And I just thought, oh, I'm just gonna flail like them. So. So I would try and every so often I would accidentally get very inspired, inspired and do one good, like a, like a one piece of dialogue. And I was like, oh, and then I was like, almost like I'd want to laminate that. Like I'd want to like enlarge it to like a hundred font and put it on my wall. I, oh, I did one good thing. And I read, read it over and over. Like I couldn't believe that I'd done one piece, good piece of dialogue. And, you know, then I'd be back in the shitter again. And then I wouldn't want to write because I wouldn't, I would be like, well, I'm now I'm, I can't deal with the anxiety of being a bad writer and seeing and looking at it and feeling bad. I mean, I was so hard on myself in ways that when I was in workshops, the other uh, writers weren't so hard. They would do things that I thought were not good, but they didn't seem to care. And they really loved hearing what they wrote. And I always hated hearing everything I wrote. And I was embarrassed and, and I was ashamed. And I just was like so, oh God. And I was, and I remember like, I was an internet new dramatist. I'd read like, like I had had like kind of like this big meltdown I, at the drama bookshop or something. And I read, um, not the drama bookshop, but the one next to the St. James Theater. I'd been in there and I was looking at plays and then they had Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. And I read the whole thing. I'd never read it before. I'd read it. I feel like I'm going to get emotional even talking about it. It was so intense for me. I've read that 
letters to a young poet. And I started crying in the dramatist bookshop because I recognized everything in there as true about me. So it was sort of like, that was, that was a huge moment. That moment in that shop, whatever it's called, theater circle or something. I, I can't remember the name of the place, but uh, that moment was so profound. And then, so, so I, and I, and I was like, okay, this is me. That what he's describing to the young poet, like that's me. So I knew something was true then. And then in the back of another book, it had an ad for new dramatists. And so I was like, ooh. And so I thought that was a sign. So I applied to become an intern at New Dramatists. They almost didn't take me. I think they thought that I was so weird. The casting director at the time thought I was insane. I don't know. I wore, I wore very like thrift story kind of tacky clothes, but she really didn't like me. But then um, Paul Slee, who was running it, I think he took me as, a, um, as an intern. And that was also so profound because that's when I learned about Susan Laurie Parks, because she was there, uh, Kelly Stewart, Mac Wellman, um, all these really fascinating writers, and this new, like, vanguard of writing, like Eric N., like, really sort of, like, complete weirdos, and I was like, what is this? This is incredible, and so that was, like, a whole other, I, I feel like I'm talking, I don't even remember what you asked me, but anyways, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so when you're when you read that book, Letters to a Young Poet, like what happened? You know, like what happened inside you? Did you did you say to yourself, I need to take action, I need to do something? Yes. I knew that I was Oh, I was I remember now what I was going to say. I'll say it in a second, but I, yes, I knew that I had a calling. I felt like it was like suddenly like, I mean, and I wrote this at my, in my new dramatist application. It was like God telling me to go, go be a nun. I, it was just a call. It was a thing I was. It wasn't just something I wanted to do. This was who I was, period. And it was part of me. It was in my DNA. And I just knew it. I knew it in my bones. So I stopped doubting myself after that moment. Because Rilke says at one point, like, are you going to die if you can't do this? And I was like, I kind of am going to die. Mm. Like, I, I sort of, like, it was so, I was like Teflon to everything else. Nothing stuck because I couldn't deal with it. And I, I, I sort of knew that, that that I had no choice, kind of. The thing that I wanted to say was, when I was at New Dramatists, they gave free classes. And one of the free, I think it was the first class I ever took was with Erin Cressida Wilson. She was also in residence. And she ended up writing Secretary and all these films and this and that. Uh, she was great. I, I really, really liked her. And she would do a lot of yoga in the beginning because she'd studied with Fornes. And that's what Fornes liked to do, yoga. I hated all of that. I've had to do a lot of yoga when I was an early playwright. And I just didn't want to do it. I would never do the yoga with them. I took the class because it was free for the interns. But I never did the yoga. And then I would never read anything I wrote because I was so embarrassed and ashamed of everything that I thought and did and wrote and said and this and that. I just look, it was really, I was neurotic. I, there's no way around it. I, my neuroses were like completely guiding me for just decades. Was there, a, was there like a, a first thing you wrote where you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe it came together for you or you're like, I actually want to show somebody this thing or it, you didn't hate hearing it. Was there a moment where that, where that neurosis changed a little bit um 
I wrote a very funny, crazy play about little orphan Annie. When, uh, when I was, because I, I ended up studying with Nikki Silver. He taught like one class in his whole life and he was a, really a bad teacher, but I loved him. He would pelt us with coins if we came late to class. He would encourage the entire class, just pelt them with coins. And I never, I'll never forget, he used to talk about the Chekhov, like three sisters. He didn't know any of the characters' name, but he'd seen the roundabout revival. And he would talk about like, you know, oh, is that the Jessica Hecht character? Or whoever was in, I can't remember. Oh, is that the Gene Triplehorn character? He couldn't remember any of the names. I loved taking his class, but I had written this bananas, anarchic, very dark farce about um, Little Orphan Annie when she got old. And I just remember people really digging it. And then I did another one in Nikki's class that I ended up applying to graduate schools with and I got in and it was like very pintery. I was just imitating. So that play, the early play was like me imitating Nikki and probably Joe Orton. And then, then I was imitating Pinter. And I was like, oh, I'm really good at imitating. So I did this play that was sort of about um, a young boy and his father. And it was um, very surreal. And it got increasingly dark and crazy as it went on. And, um, and, um, and Nikki really, really liked it. And he wrote my recommendation. He was one of my recommenders for grad school, but he really, really liked that play, probably because it was so unlike him. You know, you never want to read something that's like you. Mm -hmm. um, and I got into grad school with that play. And so and that I was like, oh, I know there's something in this. There's something really emotional and raw in this. Um, that was probably the first time. And then I couldn't, you know, I couldn't access it for a long time. <laughs> I didn't know how to do it. And I would write these like languagey type plays. That was really hip back then, like lang like just lots of languagey things. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what the center was that I should be coming from. And I didn't trust my own self as a center. I didn't trust myself. I wanted to imitate other people because I didn't believe I had anything of my own. But the truth yeah. is I had things, I just was embarrassed about them. Were you aware of this imitation at the time or is this you looking back and realizing that about yourself? It was like binocular. It was sort of like kind of knowing or, ha or maybe I had read a lot of Pinter so his voice was in my head and then I just sort of like liked that voice and it like took me over. And so, but then I sort of took some of my own issues from my unconscious and sort of worked them in but it was sort of very, very nuanced and subtle, the, 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 you know, the machinery of that. At what point did you start to develop some confidence in yourself or have you? Oh, it was a slow process. I mean, I'm pretty confident now, I have to say. I have to keep working on different things, like asserting myself sometimes. I don't always want to do that. Um, but I know when things go badly, like I listen to people um, cause first I would like fight people too much and early in my career, I would, you know, I just would go, like go to extremes. Like I would fight people and be very dominating and abusive kind of not abusive, but like just nasty. Cause that's what I grew up with. A lot of shouting. Like when, when people got what they wanted, they had to shout and be kind of abrasive, like a Scorsese movie. And that's what I did. Then my agent at the time, Morgan Jeunesse, was like, if you don't stop doing this, you're going to ruin your whole life. And I was like, oh. So then I did the opposite. And I was like, sit on my, you know, I would sit on my thumbs and like let the directors change my writing without asking me and do all these horrible things. Mm. And then it would go terribly. And then I was like, oh my God, 
that's a nightmare too. And so I was sort of like trying to figure out like how to engage with people. I was, I was, and, and you know, how to listen to myself, listen to, trust things that were nascent, trust my own impulses, trust, but I, it came only because I would do it, like I would see what happened when I didn't do it. Mm. And then I would see what the results of what, when I did do it. And I started to like tabulate everything. And over time, I'd be like, well, you did do this and this didn't work. So maybe you should do it this way the next time. And so it was literally like, I'd have to do it over and over and over and over and look at the evidence and go, well, the evidence shows me, I'm an experiential learner. So I would just like really be like, okay, the evidence has shown me that when I do this, things get better for me and my plays get better. So I have to keep doing these things. But it was always, it was never about if I didn't have art, I don't think I'd have any confidence because all of my confidence, any abilities that I cultivated in myself were to make myself a better writer. Mm. I, it was the only thing I ever cared about, probably still care about. So, you know, when I was working on my, my book, like there's all this bad writing and I was like, oh God, you know, if I don't deal with myself, I can't fix the writing <laughs> because it's a memoir. So I'd have to like really like, confront these like dark crevices in my soul to be able to fix the writing mm -hmm. and I would put myself through hell but I was like well if it'll make the book better it's worth it but if it was just for me I would never do it well what what triggered the book in the first place my book my the memoir yeah writing. I I don't know I I done you know <laughs> 10 years ago a little bit over 10 years now I did um, my my debut in, in New York at Lincoln Center and the publishers at HarperCollins had seen it, read the piece about me in the paper, and um, and asked me. You know, we think you should, they said we think you should write a book. Would you like to write one? And I was like, oh, uh, you know, memoir, what? And I, it just came out of the blue. I mean, she contacted me on Facebook, mm. and then before I knew it, my agent was driving me to to from uh, CAA to HarperCollins, and I was sitting in with Jonathan Burnham, the head of HarperCollins. It was just a really surreal thing. I don't understand it to this day. I don't get why they wanted me to do this. It just seems, I, I, you know, I don't understand it. But anyways, I do feel like it was sort of, I don't know, you know, if people believe meant to be, but like there was something very, I got like a kind of weird, eerie ringing feeling as I was writing it. Like, oh, this, I had, to, I have to do this. Like this had to happen. And I initially thought it wasn't gonna be a memoir. I thought I was gonna write these like intellectual essays. And then I was like, no, that's so stupid. Don't like stop trying to stop posing. Just like, just, just like be a mess. Let people see the mess. Mm -hmm. And so it became this reckoning with myself. And, you know, so again, I'm so grateful for, about my perfectionism as a writer because it really changed me as a person because now, because I'm actually so happy that I was forced to confront myself to write the book, to make it a better book because I feel like I'm a better, not a better person, maybe not even a happier person, but somehow a more complete person. Because of the process of, of self-reflection and putting yeah. your story down. Yeah. There is something like kind of like where the art changes the artist or something. There's, people don't really speak about that, that a lot, but art really changed, my plays change me. And there's some metric inside of the art that actually changes me as a person. It like it kind of grows me up.
a little bit. Like it makes me a better, not a better person, but I also learn about who I am through my plays because I don't have ideas for my plays. <laughs> my plays are the ideas and then they reveal themselves to me over the course of the writing. And then when I look at the play, I go, oh, this is where I'm at. And, or if I wrote the book, oh, this is who I was. This is where I'm at. This is what I was. This is what happened. And that's when I learn. And so once I learn these things, I can't go back. Like something has to change. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that process to be very profound. But I think when people come to their writing with too much of an idea or too much determinacy, or they're not willing to listen, and they're, they're not willing to open themselves to ambiguity um, or the unknown, or they think they have to, everything has to make sense, you know, or they have to have a thesis or an outline or something. You can't be surprised by um, this gnomic stuff that can come out um, in your art that can actually be very transformative for both you and for the spectators, for the audience. When we write plays, everybody who writes plays, whether they'll admit it or not, they're writing about themselves, they're in the play somewhere, and different plays and different playwrights have a different amount of veneer separating you know, the fact from the fiction. But you're writing, you write a memoir, and that veneer is somewhat stripped away, if not taken away entirely. Did that, how did that process impact you, where you couldn't put the words into a fictional, the mouth of a fictional character? Well, I did have to put them into the mouth of a fictional character because characters are fictional. So, and I, in order to write the memoir, I had to write characters and I had to kind of invent characters um, with personae that had defined like boundaries and limitations to who they could be on the page because lives are really amorphous <laughs> and, 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 and texts can't be. So, that was kind of one of the revelatory things about writing the memoir. I realized that there was more of an interpenetration between nonfiction and fiction than I originally thought. My first drafts were just like, because I don't always love that. I mean, I'm not gonna say who the writers are, but there are some memoirists who really get into this like hyper detailed um, memoiring with lots of very specific things and dialogue. And it feels really like fiction, but in a way that it turns me off so I didn't want to do that when I started. I thought, I'm not going to do that. That's so, you know, tacky. So I'm going to just write whatever I remember, and that's going to be great, and it'll be really exact. And of course, that exactitude turned into this, like, vague nebula on the page, because who cares what I remembered? I have to craft it for you, the reader, and I have to distill it for you, the reader, so that you can understand the essence of what I'm getting at, so I can communicate with you. So I have to craft it. So I thought, oh, it is like a play. I have to craft it. And I resisted it for years. I was like, no, I'm not going to craft it. I just, I don't want it to be crafted like that. I don't want it to be fake. But I realized that you do have to make choices like you do in a play. And you have to decide, okay, if I don't add these, I have to sort of add details that will um, bleed off an impression of what it really was rather than omit details I can't exactly remember and then hope that you understand something. You won't understand it because it's all in the details. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, I don't remember like what my friend ate at the Indian restaurant. Like maybe she had this, but I had to make a choice. 
<laughs> you know, maybe she didn't like move her hair like that when she was eating her food. I don't know. I can't remember exactly, but she kind of used to do things like that. She kind of did this and she kind of does. So I have to build scenes. And that was a very strange thing. I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to have to do this, you know, and, um, and then it started to work as a book. So you created sort of like a parameters, like sort of rules, like I'm allowed to operate. It's call it a memoir, but it's still allowed to. I think any memoir does this. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't think it's possible to do it unless you have recordings. Like, unless you keep rec vivid recordings of every single thing that happened to you. And also, like, even if I remembered it, like, this happened, you know, a little bit over, the, you know, over the course of 15 years, there were like 80 moments that led to this realization. But I can't show you those 80 moments because that's going to be really bad writing. Mm -hmm. So I have to make it a moment. And the, I had to make those decisions. Like, okay, well, then I have to now take, you know, like I actually went to Wesleyan for a year and then left. And I was writing about that. I was like, oh my God, I went to like 85 schools. Now, what, why do I have to leave? Now I'm going to have to take them to Wesleyan. Then I went back to Sarah Lauren and I did all these other things. I can't show you that. So I just omitted it. And then I took things and I compressed it to make it a, like a readable experience. But in the end, what it was, was this isn't readable. This is not working. So I have to change it to make it work. Because ultimately it's a book and the book needs to work. So I have to figure out how to do this and how to use the tools of fiction to tell the truth about my life in a way that works so you can read it. Did it feel any more or less vulnerable to show people? Horrible. I still can't bear it. I'm in denial. There's no closing night. It's there forever and ever and ever and ever for people to be like, what's going on with that David Ashby? Oh, this was his puberty? Oh, cool. Like, ew. But I had to do that. I mean, it wasn't like a, it, that's the thing is like, it's not about me flattering myself even. And it's not about me even like making a spectacle of how, you know, stupid I was. It's neither. It's like kind of almost like there's something so exposing about the sort of ordinariness of it all. Like it's not, there's nothing special about it, but that's what makes it feel <laughs> more exposing somehow. I'm fascinated by the fact that this process the the first seed was planted 10 years ago after your debut in new york and here it comes out 10 years later in 2020 and the life that you led in the in all of that time in the past 10 years but the book ends before that right the book ends when i got the before i got the deal to write right. the book so, yeah, no, it was a horrible, in a certain way, it kind of ruined my life writing this book because I just thought, oh, well, I'll just do it. It'll be done in like two years and, and I'll move on and I could do my, make all my money and do this, but I couldn't. I did take some TV jobs when I was able to, but then I, writing a book, you have to really do it all day and night. It's not like a play. It requires like constant, constant. It's like the Tamaguchi or something. It, it'll die if you don't attend to it mm. all the time. and. So I really had to make a lot of sacrifices to write this book. And all my friends were going on, Heidi, what became a producer and this one. And, and everyone was, and, you know, and I was writing my stupid book. And I was like, what am I doing? And it just went on and on and on. And then I would give it to the editors and then the editor would get fired. And then they give it to a different editor. And then she would quit publishing. And then the head of HarperCollins took over. And it was like a very tortuous 
crazy ex- process just you know and 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 honestly there wasn't a lot of editing going on i had to really teach myself how to edit it in publishing it's just i guess editors don't do a lot of editing anymore so i got a, some notes but they were very cursory and i basically had to do most of the shaping myself the, the person who who would asked me to write the book was fired from harper collins just before i'd given in my draft and that person was meant to help me um and shape the book that's why i took the deal because this person was going to be saying, I'll be with you every step of the way. I'll help you. We'll do this. We'll do that. And I'm going, okay, if you say so, you know, and I'm so credulous. I believe everybody. Mm. So, and then of course, you know, it wasn't her fault, but you know, she couldn't do it anymore. So I was really left to my own devices and I didn't know what I was go- getting myself into. I just didn't understand how hard this was going to, I had to teach myself a brand new skill. It has nothing to do with playwriting except for like shaping the shaping helped me the shaping of a play because i divided the book into acts and i sort of go well okay i need a reversal here and you know i sort of knew like all right i need to kind of give it this kind of shape and in the end like the last phase of writing i was like all right i got to do something but the everything else i was completely lost and i had nobody helping me i mean it was it was quite in something did the did the publisher just say whatever get it done when you get it done did they forget about you were they were they on your ass about it by the end they were very mad at me and jonathan burnham was like sending me all these ultimatums because i kept saying oh i'll do like i wanted to be a good boy and do it uh at first they forgot about me like and i was so happy i was like well this is great and you know and then i was just like sitting because it's i was working on it but it just took such a long time and i was like well I can't even explain to them why it's taking this long, but they just, I just hope they don't like come and find me. And so I would be like working on it, working on it, compulsively trying to make it a book. And then, um, and then after all the editors and all the quittings and firings and this and that, Jonathan Burnham took over. And I was delighted because he's, he was like Gorby Dahl's editor and Edmund White and all these people. I was like, oh, this is great. And he really liked the book and believed in it. And then, but then he, but then, he left too because he became the CEO of HarperCollins from the executive editor, whatever he was, publisher. So then he had no time either. And but but and 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 but when he became my editor, he was became very demanding, and he was like, "Okay, you need to." He was nice to me. He was awesome, so nice and smart. But notes were very general, and and then by the end of it, he's like, "If you don't get this done, like you know, we're going to take away this contract," and that's the end. And I was like. <sighs> No. So then I was like frantic. And I, and, and the last six months of the writing were just, I, I thought I was going to die. I can't even explain Cause I was working all day and night for months and months and months. I was going insane. I was absolutely going insane. Cause I just, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just didn't know how to do it. And I also think like, and you can see it if you read the book, it's not a conventional. I didn't have a normal life. And the book is so much about consciousness and about who I thought I was and about identity and about shifting identities and how these shifting identities eventually um, transmute into art making. And it's a very strange (laughs) topic for a book. And I wanted to make sure that it was coherent, that the sort of trajectory of it was coherent. And I think it is now, but I didn't really know what the book was, even towards like the last year. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> is this a book? What is this? What am I writing about? 
So it was very, very challenging for me. But in the, in the interim, in, in these years, since the seeds of the book were planted to its publication, you had a playwriting career. Like you were writing plays, you had productions happening. Uh, you had a major court battle over one of your plays. Like how were you, like, you had, it seems like you had multiple things that were all encompassing. And, and I like, did. Yeah, I did. And I was trying to do everything simultaneously, which is why I was losing my mind. I was, I have, you know, I was writing, I have a play that's um, called The Stumble uh, that uh, was a commission that I, it's a big three act play about Schoenberg and Oscar Levant and George Gershwin and these uh, music. And I had to learn all this music stuff for that and learn about, you know, I had to research that. That's big play. Then I were a four-act play that was supposed to go to Broadway, which now who knows what's going to happen. That, again, took me forever. We developed it over, like, zillions of workshops. And then I have another play that um, I wrote. And so, and then I was trying to, like, do the TV stuff and, you know, developing and trying to make money because no, nothing was really paying me. And so, um, you know, I was trying to toggle a lot of things. And... Um, I like that. I actually like to toggle things. I love to have more than one project because I get fatigued and I need to take breaks from things. So then it helps me to take a month away from a play and then go back and go, okay, oh, okay, that's, that's what doesn't work. But, um, but because of the deadlines and stuff, especially for the book, it, was, it made it much, you know, it made it really hard. Why do you think you were able to uh, get through it all sanely? I don't know. I, I feel like maybe there's a God. I, I really don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm being dramatic, but honestly, I really thought there were days when I was like, not just days, there were like months where I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. And I, I am in the weeds and I am out of my depth and I don't know how to write a book. And I don't know why they're they asked me to do this and I don't know why I devoted all these years to this thing that is ruining my life. It was so bad. It was so bad. And um, I had my friends had to talk me off a ledge multiple times. And then, you know, every so often you go, ooh, you'd figure something out and then it would start to congeal. It was like doing a crossword puzzle the size of a mural. It was like doing like the Seagram's mural. It was like, it was like, oh, okay, I got 15 across, <laughs> you know? Oh, that means I got this. So it's like, you know, cause it, you want it to kind of cohere. And also you want the themes to sort of like weave in and out and have this beautiful imbricate, you know, harmony. And um, some of it just takes time to congeal. I don't know what, what else to say. It's like some of it just takes time, but like in a play, it might take two weeks. And in a book, it might take six months to get the same kind of congealing. It's just the volume. It's just so overwhelming. When, when you're feeling overwhelmed with all the process and all of the projects, was, was there like a touchstone for you or there, was there a, a person you would go to? Oh yeah, my best friend, Paul, he, um, he just listens. To, he's great because he'll just let me be. I can get very like truly truly crazy and he just listens oh mm. you know and mm. and he lets me vent and then you know and he, he'll, he'll let me fight with him like do you think this works he'll read you know he'll read something and I'll, do you think this works yeah it's good no it's not you know and then i'll fight with him and why about why it's not good and why it doesn't work 
And, you know, and in the process of fighting somebody who's really not interested in, or engaged with me as in an argument, <laughs> like, then I'll be like, oh, wait, <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I, I feel like he holds the space for me to have my own epiphanies. Sometimes he'll give me good ideas, he'll move, he'll turn things around and go look at it this way. And then I'll go, oh my God, oh my God. Um, so yes, I do. I think everybody needs that. Definitely for when you're writing a book. For a play, but I think even for, for theater, I have, he's like the one person I always um, can turn to and he doesn't judge no matter how bad or early my drafts are. Because sometimes my early drafts literally look like, it looks like I'm an insane person. It looks like I'm completely, like I haven't finished first grade. You know, I remember doing my Oscar, my Oscar Levant play. Um, I, I did it with a, in a workshop with a friend, an actor who I've known a really long time who's also a playwright. Um, and well-known playwright and he said to me you do realize that like in a play you need like action obstacles and things and I was like yeah I know that he's like okay I'm just wondering what we're looking and I was like I just need to hear it you know I just need to hear it and um you know and I remember I felt so bad but I was like but this is my process and I can't it has to be a big you know when I did my play with Will Butler the one, one that I told you about stereophonic like and he's great. I just, I sent him, I said, oh, Will. And I said, okay, because I, I engaged him before we even had anything like a script. And then after like two months, I sent him what I had. It was like 300 pages of just mush. It was like mulch. And he was like, cool. He had no idea. But he, and he, we talk about it now. And he's like, no, I knew you would. He knew where I was and he trusted me. There's no gift like that. He didn't even know me. Mm -hmm. We didn't even know each other. And he just like knew, he just was like, I'm going to just go with this. Whatever this guy is doing, I'm going to go with it. And I really appreciate that. That is a huge gift to not have people judge you at your ugliest. And I kind of need, I demand it almost now from people. You mm. have to love me at my ugliest because if you don't, you're not going to be in my inner circle. Um, I know this whole story kind of got wrapped like five years ago but i i've been really curious to know about 3c and in the whole process that happened because of the um the lawsuit so and the, the thing that i've i've really been thinking a lot about you know as a writer and we talked at the very beginning about you know when you fight for something you know this was a really big fight uh that you that you took on and so for anybody who's listening who doesn't who doesn't really know the context is 3c is a play that you wrote um and you got sued you got a cease and desist order on opening night when you were in the process of writing this play and getting closer to opening how aware were you of the problems that it might we knew it might cause but we all knew I had like, I, I, that was a collaboration with Rattlestick and Wendy Vandenhoevel's company, Piece by Piece, and Daniel Talbot's company, Rising Phoenix. And we all knew from day one, there's a chance that Don Taffner was going to sue us because Taffner, who is the producer of Three's company, is known for being very litigious. And so we were sort of going, oh, well, we'll just do it under the radar. It's Rattlestick. Who's going to know? They knew within, you know, but we did have like Anna Klumsky was in the cast. I mean, it was sort of a high profile-ish. And I wasn't exactly like not un unknown. So people did know about it. It got out there. And yeah, I found it on my opening night. I remember I was sitting in the Bose DT parlor 
in the West Village and I got a thing on my phone saying, oh God, we just got this. And it was the show was happening and I sort of left to be neurotic on my opening night and I got this email and, um, you know, I did not want to fight it. I, I just thought, you know, and also like, I didn't have a lot of support um, initially. It was a very, you know, I just thought like, who cares about me? You know, who cares about this play? Who cares about me? Um, uh, there's nothing to fight. I haven't got any money. They're going to just shut us down. And then Robbie Bates, I guess Joe Mantello had seen the play tried to get Robbie to see it. Robbie couldn't see it, couldn't get in or something. So he asked me to read it. Then he read it and then it was like, wait, and now I'm hearing that, you know, this thing happened. And so Robbie sort of, the whole thing, this all happened because of Robbie. Robbie started a petition for me and wrote a statement for the all and said, you know, um, and got people like Stephen Sondheim and Tony to sign it and um, all of his friends, fancy friends. And, um, and that's, there was like this whole sort of movement that built around it. And, oh, and then he got Pat Healy to call me from the New York Times. Pat wrote a, a piece about it. And all of a sudden, I remember I was seeing my friend Sarah's play that night, so melancholy play. And I came out of the theater and I checked my phone and there were like 7,000 messages. Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, and, um, and my agents at the time were very, I don't really understand it, but they were just very hostile to me. They, did, they didn't, they were like, you did plagiarize Three's company. You're not gonna win this case. You know, so I had to leave my agents. They were trying to get, because Don Taffner was trying to get me, his company was trying to get me to sign something saying I would never again publish or produce this play and that I would throw it away, kind of. And I didn't want to sign it. And my agents were trying to get me to sign it. I just thought it was so strange. They were sort of like hectoring me to sign it. So I just left. And I got a pro bono lawyer. And... I just had this idea it was going to be like, you know, law and order. I, I thought it was going to be like, I'm in a courtroom and they're screaming at me, you know, and I didn't know anything about anything. So I just was like, no, I'm scared. I don't want that. What if I lose? And then what's going to happen to me? And they could sue me for this. And, but my lawyers were so great and they were just like, listen, you really are going to win. You're going to win. This is very, very open shot. You're, you, this is clearly parody. And um, and so I said, okay, you know, eventually I just said, okay, fine. So, and we actually, what we ended up doing is because they kept threatening to sue. They never actually sued us. They just sent the cease and desist. They never sued us, but we sued them or something. I think that's mm. what we did. We sent them saying, you better sue us now or just shut up. Mm. And it was kind of like, just do it already. Um, stop threatening us. So we sued them to make them sue us or something. <laughs> I loved my lawyers. I thought that was so baller. And so they did that. And then, um, and then I guess the, the judge um, just dismissed the whole thing. She was like, this is so stupid. And she dismissed it. And I was in Rome at the time doing a residency in Rome and I was so happy. And, and then I was, and I was in Rome with uh, Jane Ginsburg, who's Ruth Bader Ginsburg's daughter. And mm. all she wanted to do was invite me, she invited me over for dinner and talk about this case. She was really, really interested in it. Mm. And I felt so flattered. She'd feed me, you know, um, fava beans and uh, pecorino cheese. And we'd talk about Three's company. <laughs> <laughs> but did, did, when they sent the season to Smith, did it end the run? Did the run continue? It did. Well, the thing that was so screwed up about this is that, you know, I always get bad reviews in the New York Times. I'm, I just, I, I, 
no matter what I do, I just can't catch a break. And that play got just crapped on by Charles Usher. He hated it, hated it, hated it. It was humiliating. Michael Feingold wrote this horrible pan. It was so vicious and violent. And actually, Elizabeth Vincentelli wrote for The Post this article about the reviews, because some of them were really raves. Mm. And then like some of the critics were seeing it like three or four times. So and what happened, it was just very divisive, very, very divisive because people were going crazy. So the first shows were like empty, like there was like three people in the house. And then over the course of the run, before the um, anything came out about this lawsuit thing, it started to become like lines around the block. People were seeing it over and over and over and over. They would come like every night. People would just literally come like night after night after night. And and all of my actors were like, David, this is crazy. Like they're coming, we have to sign their programs every night. And um, and then it was becoming like this cult thing. It, it, and it was turning into like the Rocky Horror Show or something. It was like amazing. And we had to close. And we could have, if we had, didn't have to close, because it was also a very hard show to get right. It was not, it's not an easy show to just do. Like Samuel, like, yes, I gave the rights to Sam French, but like, it's very, very difficult. You have to find very specific kinds of actors who can deliver the kind of tonal stuff that I'm asking for and go to these strange emotional extremes. It's a kind of experimental style. It's literally splicing together Bergman with farce and sitcom and going back and forth, toggling it in a very like whiplash style and in a very real way. So it's it leaves, it left people kind of insane in the audience. Like sometimes after the show, there would be people would just be like sobbing and then like start laughing and then sobbing again, laughing. Yeah. And there'd be a lot of people, it would make people, people would walk out and start screaming. <laughs> You know, because sometimes Jackson and I, the director, we would look, we would wait across the street to see like the reaction. And especially in the beginning, we didn't know what the reaction was. We couldn't understand if the play was good or not because the reviews were so violent in both directions that we were like, did we do it? Like, what did we do? And then by the end of it, we were like, oh, we did do it. <laughs> this, is, this is the inevitable end. This is how it had to be. Um, so I felt really... Um, sad about that you know there are talks there's somebody somebody wants to there were people who wanted to read um, mount it a couple of years ago and I decided against it but then somebody else was like just approached me about maybe doing it on Broadway which I think <laughs> I don't know if that's a crazy idea or not I, I don't know what I'm gonna do I hope it comes back some at some point it's it's more apropos for the Trump era than it was when we did it you said at the beginning that you, at the beginning of that you didn't want to fight, and then you had this groundswell of support from people, and that sort of motivated the fight in you. Um, did that change you at all? Well, the Are groundswell you... was both it was both frightening and intimidating, because and also inspiring. But like mainly, it was like a lot of I had a, felt a lot of pressure, and I won't say by whom, to be an example, like to do it not for me but for playwrights, the rights of all playwrights. Mm -hmm. And so, and I didn't think that those people who pretended to, who, who were saying that they were basically there for, to defend playwrights, I don't think they really cared one way about what happened to me or another. Like I really, and they, they wouldn't, they weren't there for me. Mm -hmm. They weren't there for me. It was very clear that they were there for themselves and they had an agenda. And I didn't like that. And I felt very uncomfortable with 
how people were speaking to me. And um, so I sort of backed out a little bit in the beginning. Like there was a phase where I was like, I'm not doing this, I'm out. Like, I don't just get away from me. Mm -hmm. It became this whole, because it got, when it started get, to get bigger than just me, it really wasn't about me. It just became, you know, and all these people wanted to do these interviews. And I was like, no, like, I don't know, Time Magazine. There were all these, and I was like, I'm not doing any more press. I've, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And I just shut off my phone and shut off my computer because it was get, becoming such a big deal that I was like, and also like, I didn't want to be known as this like threes company playwright. Like there was something mm -hmm. about, I was like, you're going to get the wrong idea. It's not like, you know, the real life Brady Bunch. <laughs> it's a real play. And not that I don't love the real life Brady Bunch because I loved it. That was a thing that Joe Soloway did, sorry, Joey Soloway did in the 90s. Um, and they reenacted Brady Bunch. This is different. It, this is a serious play and I'm exploiting lowbrow um, signifiers to do something that mm -hmm. I want to do as an artist. Um, but I got nervous about the, that kind of publicity that I was getting. So I sort of backed away from it. How do you feel about publicity now? Oh, it's, I mean, it's like branding, you know, and it's what you kind of have to do if you want to build a career for yourself. And I unfortunately have to because I need to make money. Mm -hmm. So I have to be thinking about these things and image, you know, you're, and I'm really bad at it. I think sometimes, and I also think that there's a part of, that there's something about my story, I think that can be useful to other artists when, if I'm really honest about who I am. So I think I try to use publicity not as a way to like create a false sheen, but to actually penetrate into something very real and communicate and offer my testimony. So that's how I can live with doing it. Mm. Um, but like I had to do an Instagram because of my, um, my book. They kind of pushed me into it. And, you know, I was like, Ugh. but now I kind of like Instagram. I'm like, ooh, photo, picture, this, you know, mm -hmm. I, I could just put any, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. and, and everyone's like, well, I love it. You know, I don't know. It's really, no artist really gives a shit. I mean, there are people who really like it. You can tell who they are because they just like run around doing it. Um, most people I know don't really enjoy doing publicity. They just think it's so stupid, but um you have to do it. I don't know. It's like, I have to do a podcast. I have, I have to get my, my name out there. And I also believe in my work. I want people to be, experience it. I want them to, you know, go see my play. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Who are, who am I? If you guys aren't seeing my plays. <laughs> you, you said at the beginning, uh, when we were talking about your, your sort of early years that your family, you felt pressured by your family and by the people you saw growing up to, to be like a Trump, to go in that direction. And you clearly did not. Uh, and I, I wonder if that ever came back around to your family about you becoming a writer, becoming an artist. I don't think they still don't know what to make of me. I mean, I think they understand success. So they understand like success is like money and also success is like, oh, you had a piece in the New York Times. Like my mother, when I first had, like, I remember there was a phase where I was in the New York Times a lot and they were doing these articles about me. And then like a few months later, my mother like texted me like, why aren't you in the New York Times anymore? 
like like that was somehow like like if as long as I had like a regular <laughs> presence in the New York Times, she could like know you know that what was going it was all good with me, mm. and so she was so that's sort of like how, but I don't think that like artistic success really translates like if I'm not making a lot of money or if I'm not, you know, doing big splashy, whatever. Um, they don't care. And theater in general, like, nobody really cares about it. Like, no one really knows anything about theater makers outside of, like, our little tiny group of crazy nerds mm-hmm. who just want to do this for some crazy reason. We want to do it. But ultimately, like, playwriting is really off the grid in terms of, like, popular culture and, like, American society. No one knows what the hell it is. Do you feel like a success? I mean, not really, if I'm to be totally honest. I feel frustrated. I feel like my peers went off and did all this stuff and I kind of felt held back. And I think it's partly because of my book. Um, but I think I'm like really good, you know? And I, yeah. I, I kind of, I feel like, okay, maybe this, I will never be seen as the kind of mainstream, like even in the Times piece that they did about me for my book, I was called niche. That's like, well, I can't help it if I'm a Syrian Sephardic gay Jew. I mean, I don't know what else to do about it. Like, that's who I am. What am I supposed to do? I don't write about it all the time, but I'm not gonna not write about it if I'm writing a memoir. So I have to be niche to be me. So, but I think that I'm perceived as niche, but you know, I think that the play that was gonna go to Broadway, if it, if it happens, I really think I could have a mainstream success and I but I just love the play I don't care it's like I kind of like I don't really kind of care so much I just want to make a lot of money so that I can just do my thing you know what I mean but I don't think that society is such a great metric for greatness and like for artistic greatness and I don't know if they care so much about it um I think that there's a lot going on like there are a lot of rushing currents that determine who gets seen or highlighted in a society during a specific historical moment. And, you know, I just, I don't, I can't care about it kind of. I mean, I do. And especially as I'm getting older, I'm like, oh no, I like that weird guy that I saw at the library at the University of Iowa who like was a Pulitzer finalist, but no one will ever know who he was ever till his dying day, except Mm. for this like weird collection at the University of Iowa. Maybe that'll be me. I don't know. You can't control it. You just you just have to do your work. Thank you to David Ajme. You can find his book, Lot 6, wherever books are sold. And like he mentioned, you can find him on the Instagrams now. And all of our fingers are crossed that Stereophonic has its Broadway opening next year. Thank you to American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. On a side note, the magazine made the tough choice to go all digital this year because of the virus, but that has not slowed them down. They've been cranking out some excellent work throughout this pandemic, so check out what they're up to at the website americantheatre.org, where you can also stream the subtext. Thanks as always to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song for the subtext is by International Pen Pal. 
This month's episode was edited by associate producer KJ Jarbo. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is The Head That Wears the Crown by Hope Villanueva. Hope is an excellent stage manager as well as playwright. Oh, she's also an amazing baker. You can go find her plays on New Play Exchange, and you can go find her cakes on New Cake Exchange. I wish that was a real thing. (laughs) 